This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Heretic Happy Hour, whose tagline is burning questions, not people. Join hosts Shonda Jaw, December Rose, Dr. Reverend Katie Valentine, Keith Giles, and myself, Matthew J. DiStefano, for a happy hour filled with quality conversation, fine fellowship, and perhaps even a laugh or two. Unapologetically irreverent and crass, yet sometimes profound, we make sure to pull no punches and leave no stones unturned as we discuss the Christian faith. But listener, beware. There will assuredly be some serious sacred cow tipping. If that sounds like your cup of tea, or bourbon if that's your thing, head on over to heretichappyhour.com to stay up to date with us. And be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. The mind that was in Jesus, that mind is in me. Without me, life has no meaning. Why would God tell you what I'm thinking and tell you what I've said to my wife or my husband when you're not around? It's because I'm the pastor of the church and I need to know. This is the only place where you can see truth. Hey, heathens, you're listening to the Deadly Faith Podcast, where religion and crime collide. I'm Lacey. And I'm Lola. And this shit is devastating. Oh. So, I know, it is so sad. Today's case is not a happy one, and I'm so sorry, but... I mean, look at the fucking title. You know, it is a survivor case. So, it is our first survivor case, right? I'm pretty sure. Yes. Well, hold on. Well, the Duggars, the Duggars, nobody died, but... I mean, not like physically, but mentally, maybe. Yeah. Well, I guess for this case too. But today we are going to be telling the case of the boy in the cellar. But before we get started, I want to give you guys some trigger warnings because this one is pretty, pretty brutal. Um, There's physical abuse, domestic violence, there's pedophilia, there's medical experiments. I feel like I'm missing something, but there's no murder or anything like that. But why would you say medical experiments? Okay. Yeah, I know, right? Do you know that movie called Overlord? No. Okay, it's from like, oh God, maybe from 2016. I don't know. Someone's going to fact check me on it, I'm sure. But Overlord is some like, it's like a war type film. But like it takes place in Nazi Germany where like apparently the the German government was trying to build like the ultimate soldier. So they made this chemical to like inject people with that like would make them ultra strong and like indestructible. Like you couldn't die. Like, no matter what, you couldn't die. So, yeah, and they did a lot of, like, gross experimentation. And so whenever I think about human experience, all I can think of is how that movie traumatized me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, we're, we're not going to, well... Yeah. We're not going we're, to Germany. That's nice. We're not okay. going to Germany, but okay. we are going to England. Oh. But, yeah, before we get started, let's just give a little, yeah, I don't know. How was your week, Lola? How have you been? How was I my week? Got, I don't remember my week. <laughs> I know, right? Like, can we think about the last time? I'll go first. The last time we recorded after that, I actually got to go to Awaken and I was one of the speakers, which was my very first public speaking event. And <laughs> it was amazing. It was very small, like not very small, but it was intimate. There was like 40-ish people there. Everybody finally, loved her. Oh my Everybody God. It was, loved her. I got really amazing compliments and I got told I did really well, which I was freaking out about (laughs) because I talked about emotions and how like Christianity labels emotions as good or positive emotions and negative emotions. And you see so many sermons on if you're struggling with X, Y, and Z emotions, depression, anxiety, Mm -hmm. anger. And it's like, those are all healthy emotions. 
And any emotion can be an unhealthy emotion. Happiness can be unhealthy if you're like doing toxic positivity or like gaslighting yourself to be happy over and over again and not dealing with your shit. Yeah. So any emotion can be healthy. So that's what I was teaching on. Any emotion can be healthy. Any emotion can be unhealthy. And finding the balance and learning to like identify and sit with your emotions emotions, and process through. And like I was, in a neutral way. Yeah. Right? Yeah, That's really like, nice. Yeah. I didn't use the Bible. There was no like religion or faith or anything, any kind of aspect coming into it. It was literally mm-hmm. just like a very educational talk. And a lot of the people in the group that were there are were like 50 and above, which was so healing to me seeing that generation <laughs> there yes. and like holding space for people who are questioning their beliefs. They're questioning their beliefs. They're doing the hard work of like unlearning homophobia and racism. And I was just like, I was blown away and I was so proud of that generation and I was so proud to be there. And I was so honored that they were like sitting there actually listening to a millennial and being like, I can get information and good advice and knowledge. Like she has something to share and I'm going to listen to it. Because I don't know how many times when I was like deeply in Christianity, I heard the older generations be like, oh gosh, these millennials, they're just lazy and don't want to do this or that. Or like, you, you're you not old enough to know what I'm talking about. And uh, like you, you don't know. What you, you need to learn a lot first. That's what I uh-huh. always get told is like, oh, you just haven't lived long enough to know, have a perspective on that. <laughs> Ugh, that just, that pisses me off. And they didn't do that. They held space and they... It was just, it was amazing. I literally came home and I told Lola, I was like, I feel like a kid that just got back from like church camp. Like you get that Jesus <laughs> high. But I was like, I don't have the obligation of like going out and saving souls and like living for God perfectly. You don't have to witness to people now. Yeah, I don't have to witness people. I was like, I just get to sit in this and it was awesome. So yeah, that was my win. I loved it. I didn't get to go to that and I'm very upset, but I will I be know. at the next thingy because I'm sick of being... The lame one that never shows up. (laughs) Right. I totally understand that. That was me for years. And I finally, this past year, well, no, end of 2022 and then in 2023, I got to actually like physically meet people for the first time, which was fun. And as you guys know, Lola and I have never met in the physical. Not in the physical realm. Not in the physical realm. We have not gotten to hug each other's necks. So one day. Really? You're just AI, aren't you? I know, I am. (laughs) You're just AI. This is all a con. What do the right wings call it? Like the I'm a deep fake, a deep fake or something like that. I haven't heard that in a while. That's how you know I don't associate with that group anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. How was your week or weekend? I oh I have something. I had a tea party (gasps) on Sunday. No, you didn't. A tea party? Yeah. So like me and my friends, we all we all went to one of my friends' houses and we dressed up in like little dresses, like little fancy dresses. And we had a tea party and like I made some homemade biscuits and my friend had some cookies and I brought some mint and lemongrass from my, not lemongrass, lemon balm. Yeah, from my garden for our tea. And we also painted candles too. Was your inner child just like freaking the fuck out? Because mine would have been. It was, okay, honestly, so like, one, so the friend who hosted it at her house, her husband walked up uh, and was watching us paint candles. And we were just listening to music and, and eating our, our biscuits and tea and right. all that good stuff. And he just, he looked at us <laughs> like a wholesome dad. <laughs> and he was like, you know, pretty much, I'm going to paraphrase this, like nothing right. in the world matters at all. 
like ever. Like we think all these things matter, but nothing mm-hmm. really matters. And he was like, these little moments, like in the whole cosmos, right? you know, we're just like a dust in the wind. Right. But in this moment, time is like kind of stopped for a second to like just marvel at this moment of just a couple of friends having a tea party and just not being overcome by the stupid daily tasks of the day-to-day. And not living within like a another historical event. Like we've lived through enough historical events in the last like five fucking years. Like let me just enjoy my goddamn tea party. Like (laughs) Yes. I agree. Yeah. I love that. We got to like not wear masks and be near each other and hug each other and yes. Eat off the same plate. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. Oh my gosh, that's so fun. Yeah, it was super fun. We're planning to have a picnic next time and we're gonna make like a little cake. And I think what else are we gonna do? We might end up doing some other kind of artsy craft thing. I don't know. We'll have to pick out what we're going to do. But yeah, I think we're going to start doing this once a month where we just like disconnect from everything and just connect with each other and do something just kind and wholesome together. (laughs) Yes. When I lived in Oregon, I lived there for like five years. And this, it was in the time I was like having all my babies. And I got in contact like through like a breastfeeding group at the hospital. I met Mm -hmm. a ton of other moms who had babies around the same age. We all kind of connected over the years. And then eventually we ended up starting like a Bunko group. Do you know what the game Bunko is? Yes. I fucking love Bunko. So every month we would have a Bunko night with like um, how many ever people. And it was so much fun. I love it. I miss it. I Mm. desperately miss it. It's it's so fun. So That's adorable. And I love that. I don't know the rules of Bunko, but let me tell you, I know the ladies that play it or the people that play it, they get into it. They love it. Oh, it's, it's intense. I love it. It is like one of my favorites. But... Those were our weeks. So let's jump into the case today. I'm ready to hear. I'm nervous. Yes. I'm excited to tell this story because this is a story that not a lot of people know. It's not covered literally anywhere. Like on YouTube, like true crime people don't cover this case. I was actually the first person to cover this case when I did have my YouTube channel. And after I covered this, the son, one of the sons of the main person in this case, (laughs) actually reached out to me on Instagram and thanked me for sharing his dad's story. And I'm so excited to share it again on this platform and talk about this and plug his story. And then I'm going to send it to him and let them listen to it because it's so good. Uh, Mr. Sun, if you're listening to this, Thank you for everything, and we love you. And thank you for reaching out. Everybody be nice. Yes, everybody be nice. nice. Okay, so we've given you your trigger warnings, and we are going to jump in to the story. Again, we understand when we tell these cases, this is not a representation of every religion, every denomination, and every person that identifies with these uh, religious groups. We understand that it is not all. So please know that we are not encompassing everybody when we tell these cases. But without further ado, let's jump into the boy in the cellar. So I'm going to tell this story in the timeline of the victim's life. And that's going to make a lot more sense as I get started. And you'll you'll get why I'm doing this, okay? I'm ready. So today's case takes place in England in a dark, damp cellar. In this cellar lived a little boy, all alone, cut off from the outside world, 
His earliest memories start in this cellar. So it's believed that he's lived there from birth, honestly, or at least like close to it. So being so isolated meant that his only friends were the spiders that lived in the cellar with him. Not even fucking kidding. He made friends with the spiders and he had one spider that was his favorite and his best friend and he affectionately named him Peter. Peter was this little boy's best friend. Wait, what about when the spiders died? Just wait. No! I know. (laughs) I hate this. So while he lived in the cellar, uh, his father and sometimes his mom would come down and bring him like food. So like breakfast and dinner. I'm not sure that he actually got lunch. They would just bring him like breakfast and dinner. He could have gotten lunch, but that was probably like mostly on the weekends because they did work. His mom, sorry, his mom only came down a handful of times. But when she did, she was very quiet and reserved and she rarely spoke to the boy. The boy was forced to wear the same clothes every day, day in and day out, until one of his parents would come down with a large bucket of lukewarm water, not even hot, just lukewarm water, so he could bathe in this bucket. And then his father would take his clothes up and wash them. Now, I'm not sure if he got like an extra pair of clothes to wear or if he literally had to sit there naked till his clothes were clean and they brought him back down. I'm not really sure. After we get to know his dad, like he could have easily had to sit there naked and I wouldn't be surprised because this man's a fucking douchebag. For his shoes, uh, he had a pair of what's called Wellington boots, which just imagine rain boots. But somehow they were rigged to fit him, but they were still way too big for him. I could not figure out how they rigged these shoes up, but I'm sure it looked absolutely weird. Wait, what are they called? What are the shoes? They're called Wellington boots. It's literally just like a pair of rain boots because this is in England. So they have a little bit of different names for things than we do here in America. Yeah, yeah. So basically rain boots. When the boy needed to use the restroom, he was forced to relieve himself in a bucket. So imagine this, you're living in a dark, damp cellar with a bucket that you poop and pee in And you don't get to bathe, but very seldomly. And your clothes are dirty because you have to wear them day in and day out. And they're, again, seldomly cleaned. I cannot imagine the smell that he lived with. Mm -mm. Mm Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Right? No. Like, just, no. No, thank you. And I bet he just became, like, used to it. You know how you get nose blind to things? Like... I'm sure he didn't even realize that (sighs) that was an off-putting smell. So he's breathing in, like, gross air and doesn't even realize it. Like, how bad is that for... Anybody. And dampness, like bacteria and mold. Infection, mold. All that shit. Yeah. And he's living in that. I want to hug him. Well, now, during the days while his parents were at work, he was homeschooled. Why? Oh. Right? That throws you off. (laughs) I was like, what the fuck? Why? Okay. We don't know why. But that was like something his dad was like very adamant on was like, homeschooling him, which like, okay, cool. You're giving him an education, but also you've locked your son in a cellar. So like, that's not getting you any brownie points, in my opinion. (laughs) At night when his parents came home from work, the boy sat in fear because his father regularly beat him. And every day was a toss up whether he was going to get beat or not. So if he didn't finish his homework by the time his dad got home, he was beaten. If he got problems wrong on the homework, he was beaten. If he asked questions, beaten. Basically, if this boy opened his mouth, his father would beat him for just anything, basically. So he lived in that fear. So one day it had rained 
And the boy's bed had gotten wet because there had there was like some kind of exhaust in the top of this cellar. And since it had rained, it had the water had come through this exhaust and gotten the boy's bed wet. Well, when the dad came down, he saw the bed that was wet and he got so mad because he thought that the boy peed his bed. And so he attacked the boy and then threw a pair of scissors at him. The boy, of course, raised his hand to try to like protect his face and the scissors went through his hand. Like completely? I don't know if it completely went through his hand or if it just stabbed him into his hand. Oh my God. I'm pretty sure it didn't go all the way through, but... I'm like, I'm legitimately crying. Like a tear just rolled down my face. Like, like I want to be a mom so bad. And it's like, some people don't deserve to be parents. Like I'm saying it. I'm saying it. Some people don't deserve it. Exactly. Agreed. Thousand percent. Like, why? Oh my gosh. So after he throws the pair of scissors and stabs his child in the hand, he then blames the child by saying, look what you made me do. Look what you made me do. Like you made me so mad. I stabbed you in the hand and that's your fault. (laughs) Okay. The fucking audacity there, bucko. Oh. Oh. So the father also was constantly calling this boy names. His favorite would be to call him a little bastard. So this was his life. He was trapped in a cellar, forced to do school alone on his own, beaten over and over again, and emotionally tormented. With the spiders. With the spiders. He had his spiders. With the spiders. I think that part when I, like there is a book and I'll plug it later. But when I was reading this, that part, I've read this book twice, guys. Like, yeah, it made me cry every time. The spiders, because it was like, it is so innately like just innately within us to have companionship, to connect with other people. And he couldn't do that so that he connected with the only thing he knew or that was there physically. That was physically, like living in front of him. That was living. Yeah. And it was a spider. And I'm like, oh my God. Like that part made me cry when I read the book. Yes. Well, since he was homeschooled, um, he had access to pencils and paper. So since he had this access, he would draw a lot. And his favorite thing to draw were monsters. And the reason he liked drawing monsters was because he was envisioning these monsters as his dad. And it was, I think, probably some kind of therapeutic way of like getting his thoughts and feelings out and just putting them on paper. Yeah. But after he would finish a drawing, he would hide them around the cellar within like the cracks of the bricks because he didn't want his dad to find them because he was afraid that if his dad found them, he would take them away. And the reason that he was afraid he would take them away was that at one point when he was a lot younger, so like really little, he had two toys. That was all he had down in the cellar was he had two toys. And I can't remember what one of them was, but I do know one of them was like an elephant, like stuffed animal. Mm -hmm. Well, one day the dad comes home, he goes down to the cellar and he takes the boy's toys away and walks out and never brings them back. And the boy (sighs) was bawling and begging for his toys back. Like that elephant was like his comfort. And the dad would never bring him back at all whatsoever. Me and this dad need to have words. We need to have more than words. Oh, we need to... I, mm, this pull is, up. Okay, pull this up is, on me. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to hear me say this time and time again throughout this entire podcast. It's from now until eternity. I don't believe in hell. These are the moments where I wish I believed in it because it would just comfort my mind to like tell myself that man is burning for eternity and being tormented. I'm imagining an ironic t-shirt that says, I don't believe in hell. And then it's like 
an abuser, like reaching up from the flames. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I would, this, this is the time I wish I believed in hell because this man definitely needs to be there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think whenever this happened, it taught him to protect whatever he loved or cherished. And so the dad didn't know about him having friends and being friends with the spiders. His dad had no idea about the drawings. And so he tried to protect whatever he could and keep it from his father. Because he was vicious and mean and cruel for no fucking reason. As the boy got older, he would do what was called slop out the bucket. Now, this meant that he would take the bucket that he had peed and pooped in and probably like spit yeah. in and all that stuff. He would take it out of the cellar and dump it in an outside toilet. They had like some kind of like outhouse mm-hmm. toilet thing going on outside. So the day that his dad opened the cellar and was like, come on, grab your bucket. You're going to slop it out. This was mm-hmm. the first time that this boy was able to leave the cellar in his entire life. He <gasps> had never been out the cellar door. I'm sorry, and around what age is this? Do we know? I'm going to say based off like what we find out in a little while, I'm going to say that he was probably six at this time. Okay. Six is probably okay. a good age. So he's terrified to leave the cellar, right? Because he's never left before and he's terrified of his dad. So he's like, "What? where is he taking me? What am I doing? He gets to walk through the house just a little bit. So he walks out of the cellar. He walks through the kitchen and he's mesmerized by the kitchen because the kitchen has all this food and he's never had a free-for-all, you know? Yeah. And then he walks through the back and he gets to go outside for the first time. He's seeing things that he doesn't know how to put words to. Trees, cement, birds, all of that stuff. He has no idea how to like grasp what he's seeing. Yeah. And his dad like takes him out to this outside toilet and he will dump the bucket and flush it and then he'll go back into the house. Now, unfortunately, as time went on, the treatment from his father grew worse and worse. Many times when he would, quote, slap out the bucket, his father would actually lock him in the outside toilet and just leave him there for hours and sometimes overnight. Just leave him there. What's the point? Leroy? I don't know the guy's name, but to, I just... <laughs> To just be a dick. To just be cruel. Why or how does this bring you comfort? I don't fucking get it. I don't get it. And I never will. I'm assuming this is the only child they had. You just wait and see. Yep. Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay, great. He struggled with why his father treated him this way. And he didn't understand it. He knew he messed up from time to time. But like nothing out of the ordinary, nothing like any other kid didn't do. But he didn't feel like he was a bad kid. So why was he getting this treatment? Fair. Yeah, right. Many times he asked if he could come out of the cellar. Can I not live in the cellar anymore? But his dad would say no. He told him the cellar is your home. As he gets older, he starts to hear voices coming from upstairs. (gasps) These are voices of younger children. (gasps) This confused him. Why? Why are there other voices coming from upstairs? And why do they sound like they're around my age? Or, or, you know, like they're children. This confused him and he couldn't ask questions because he'd get beaten. And so he had to sit there and just wonder why he hears other children upstairs. Now, one day while he was getting beaten, his dad breaks his arm. He had to get taken to the hospital. So this is the boy's first time outside of the house. At this point, he had only seen very little of the house, not the majority. He'd just seen the kitchen, the outside, and then the cellar. That was his concept of the world. So... When he walked out of the house, everything was completely overwhelming to him. 
the car, buildings, people, everything. Fascinating, yes, but overwhelming because I'm sure his mind was gone like sensory overstimulation. And he, like, can you imagine, like, your arm is broken, you're hurting, and you're walking up to this vehicle and getting in it, it's got wheels, and then all of a sudden this contraption starts moving and taking you another place. I would have been terrified. Yeah, I would have been scared shitless over that. And his dad's not explaining any of this because I'm sure he's like, let him be scared. He's getting enjoyment out of it, right? Mm. So he also didn't know what to call things, right? So he didn't know to call it a road or a car or a tree or a building or a house. Like he didn't know any of those words. He's still very young at this point. Yeah. So at the hospital, this is when we and the boy find out that his name is Stephen. So the doctors ask him like, what's your name? Or like, what's your child's name? And he said, Stephen Smith. So this boy is also, he finds out he's seven years old. So he finds out his name and he finds out his age. He did not know his name until he was seven. Did they not call his name? He called him a little bastard. That was his favorite thing to call him. I wonder if he thought his name was little bastard. Right? Oh my God. I mean, he could have been conditioned. I don't know. Exactly. So at the hospital, fear kept him from saying anything to the nurse or the doctor. And it was... Just a broken arm, so it was just going to the doctor, getting it wrapped up, getting it put in cast, and going home. So it wasn't like he was there for hours on end or even days. So one day, you know, when he gets back home, like they do this whole thing with his arm, he goes back home, and whenever it's time for the cast to come off, the dad just cuts it off himself. He's not going to take him back to the hospital. So the dad cuts the cast off himself, and life is normal back in the cellar doing his thing, slopping out the bucket, homeschooling. Great. Well, then one day, uh, Stephen was able to get the cellar door open while everyone was out of the house. So do it, he do gets it, do to, it, do it. <laughs> he gets to explore the house. <gasps> he only makes it to the kitchen mm. because he's so overwhelmed and fascinated by all the mm. food. He is like just consuming anything and everything. Yeah. And he finds eggs and he's like fascinated the eggs and he's dropping the eggs on the floor and they're cracking open. He yeah. finds cheese and he's like stuffing his face in cheese and then like, I think it's like crackers oh. or biscuits. They call them biscuits, but it's not yeah. biscuits that what we would call here in the US because remember this is in England. Yes. And so I think it's like, what we would call like a thick cracker, basically. So imagine that. So he's stuffing his face with that. So it's causing a lot of crumbs. And he's just like in hog fucking heaven, man. Oh my God. That makes me so happy. But now I'm nervous because I know what's coming after. Right. Oh my goodness. Suddenly. You remember that feeling though of like when you're a kid and you've like, been, I guess you haven't eaten for a while or you've like played mm-hmm. really hard. And then it's like an insatiable type of like hunger. Yes. I feel like that's the only thing I can equate to this because I've never experienced such, uh, you know, starvation. I grew up poor. And so when I say poor, I mean like paycheck to paycheck. Like our bills mm-hmm. weren't shut off, but like we struggled and yeah. there was no room for extra anything. And so any kind of food we had in the house was, you know, like off brand. We never got the nice, cool snacks or anything. We didn't get any of that. No name and brand so, soda. No, oh, hell no. <laughs> no, no, no. I was lucky until my uncle like started like selling and raising calves uh, mm-hmm. or cows and stuff. And we would like go halfsies on a cow and they would butcher it and we got meat that way. Before yeah. that, like meat was 
rare, more rare within our diet mm-hmm. because it was more expensive. Well, like when I would go to a friend's house and they would have the cool snacks, I, that's how I felt. Like, our, that is the closest I can compare to how he probably felt in that moment. Yeah, we can, we can't really yeah, know. Like, yeah, but this is the closest <laughs> no. we can understand. No. But you know that feeling of like how yes, excited and insatiable, and so like you know that yes. part of your body that just like it's not just a physical hunger, you know? Yeah. It's yes. not. So it's so powerful. And it's so beautiful to like watch someone. <laughs> yes. Not like in an unhealthy fashion, but like stuff their face kind stuff of. Stuff their face. Seriously. <laughs> yes. It's beautiful. I love that. Okay. So he's stuffing his face. He's getting crumbs and eggs and oh God. <laughs> he is enjoying this. He's drinking milk. He's eating cheese. He's oh, like, yes. He's, he's in hog heaven, right? Good. But then suddenly no. he hears his parents get home. I hate and this. in a panic, he just runs back down to the cellar, honestly fearing for his life. And he hears his parents come in, like he can hear them walking through the house. He oh. hears his mom get to the kitchen and she screams. And I think she said something along the lines of like, he's been in the kitchen or something. And then he hears his dad yell, Stop. so the rat's gotten out. And he yells it really loud. And then he hears, no, 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 no. Coming down the stairs, Stephen got a horrible beating Mm -hmm. for that in his face. Like, I mean, punched over and over again in his face for leaving the cellar. Now, after this, he's just been beaten to shit. Do you want to know what Stephen's thought was after this? His first thought was, that he felt guilty because he didn't bring back any crumbs for his friend Peter, the spider. Oh, buddy. Right? Buddy. I was like, you just got beat to shit and you're worried and feel bad. You didn't bring a crumb for Peter? Because he's thinking about his <sighs> friend because he's a good person. Because he's a good... Already. Already. He hasn't even... Isn't that powerful that he still hasn't yes. been tainted by this abuse? He hasn't like, and he's I guess, seven. lashed out. Right. Ugh. So Stephen would, as he got older, you know, he's experiencing normal bodily things that every kid's going to experience. And he starts losing his teeth. But he has Oof. no concept. <laughs> yeah, no, he's, lo- he's losing his baby teeth, I keep right? forgetting. Yeah, that, that's yeah, a he's thing. Baby. That's a thing. <laughs> that's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> He's losing his teeth. (laughs) You're like, wait, oh, okay, hold on. I'm thinking somehow. I'm thinking like he's 15 and he's like such in such poor health that he's losing teeth. So like that was my. That's how I'm tracking. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. No, no, no. He's seven, so he starts losing his baby teeth. Yes. And he's terrified because he doesn't know that his teeth are going to do this, and he's afraid it's going to be another thing that he gets beaten up over. Oh. So he starts. He's again like his pictures. He's hiding his teeth. Anywhere in every crack he can, he's hiding his teeth. And then he's trying to just not talk in a way that his father will see those teeth missing. Yeah. yeah. So he hides it. Even though he was beaten badly when he got out of the cellar that first time, mm-hmm. he still wanted to try and get out. The dad ended up adding a wedge to the door, but Stephen figured out how to use a pencil and get the wedge out so he could escape. Mm-hmm. Now, this time he took food, but then he explored the house more. Doors, windows, everything was locked. So he still couldn't get out of the house, but he was able to explore and kind of just look around. Yeah. Now, when the dad got home, 
he noticed that the wedge was on the floor because Stephen couldn't get the wedge back and put himself back in the cellar. So he saw it and he knew that he had gotten out. Now he went down. Again, Stephen got a beating. And in the tussle of this beating, Stephen Mm -hmm. tried to get away. But his dad like cranked his arm behind his back, broke his arm. Broke his arm again. Are you Uh, kidding me? Again. Okay. I know this man's probably dead, but I'm widening up for the punch. Uh, Right? No. Seriously. Okay. So now he's got to go to the hospital again. Broken arm. Got to go to the hospital. Good, good, good. His dad's like, well, I can't take you back to the same hospital because like that's going to look suspicious. So he takes him to a different hospital. So during the drive over to this hospital, he tells Stephen about things that are called workhouses and he makes them sound super bad and tells Stephen like, you don't want to end up in one of those. And so you better not say anything at the hospital about what goes on at home because then they'll take you away and they'll put you in one of those places. And like you, like what you have going on at our house is better than what would happen over there. So basically trying to like put some fear into him so that he doesn't say anything. Manipulation. Great. Okay. So he gets, yeah, he gets to the second hospital and he tells the guy that this, the Stephen's name is John. So not only is he taking him to a new hospital, but he's lying about his name. So he's trying to cover his tracks uh, one, every which way. So after that hospital trip, they wrapped his arm up in a cast. They sent him home and Same thing. After a while, his dad just cut off the cast. But when they got home from that hospital trip, he was putting Stephen back in the cellar. And before he left, the dad saw something out of the corner of his eye. It was Stephen's drawings that he had hidden within the crack. No, are you kidding me? No. Yes, he finds them. Stephen is freaking out because he's now found these and he's hidden them from him. So, of course, this is going to be something that he gets beaten up over for. That's that's where his mind's going right now. Shit. So, he's standing there. The dad pulls them out. He starts looking at them. And all of a sudden, the dad looks at Stephen and goes, they're pretty good. You're a good drawer. Like, he's complimenting him. And for a moment, Stephen is so excited. Like, his dad is actually praising him for, like, the first time in his whole fucking life. Okay? He felt proud. He gets his dad's approval. He's so excited. And then his dad takes the papers and he just starts ripping them up into shreds. Oh, motherfucker. Like, this is how cruel he is. Uh, like, yeah. Not yeah. just beating, like, he wants to emotionally and psychologically just tear you fucking down. And I'm like, you are a piece of fucking shit. This man. This mm. is how you make a serial killer. Right? This is how you make them. He doesn't turn out to be a serial killer, okay? Of course he doesn't, because he's a good person worried about the spider. Right. (laughs) But the fact that, like, this person did not end up to be a serial killer, when you find out everything that happens, my mind is blown. Like, you have all the right to, like, just go out and, like, not all the right, but I would understand where it came from. That would be the path that you would really go down is violence and death and, you know, all those horrible things because that's all you've ever known. It was normal, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. At a certain point, even though you fear the beatings, you know when to brace yourself kind of thing. Yeah. And I I have a theory on, not a theory that why he didn't become a serial killer, but like one thing that I think helped like deter him Mm -hmm. from bad paths, but we'll get into that later. But 
Anyways, so one day Stephen goes out to slop out his bucket when he went outside only to see two children and a baby in the backyard. Now Stephen looks up and he sees his mom. She grabs the baby and the kids and or I think she grabbed the kids. I can't remember if she grabbed the kids or not, but she runs inside. Oh no, the two children just stood there. So she grabs the baby, runs inside. The two children just stand there. And he's like, who the fuck are these people? Now the dad was shocked to see the kids when Stephen came outside. And after Stephen went back inside, after slopping out the bucket and went back in the cellar, he heard his dad yelling at his mom and telling her like, I told you to keep them upstairs. And then he heard a very loud bang. Now, Stephen never saw his mom physically abused, but based off of how she acted around him, how timid she was, how scared she looked all the time, and hearing this loud bang after he hears his dad yell at her, we are going to assume that most likely she was physically abused as well by the dad. Yeah. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that that... It's not a long limb. Yeah, it's it's not. not, No, I just kind of... Tiptoed out on that list. <laughs> I have so many questions about these kids. Are you going to answer any of them that are in my head? Uh, I meant maybe because I still have questions. I there are so many questions I have, and poor Stephen still has those questions today. Okay, so huh. we haven't get to that. Okay, okay, okay. Now, shortly after this encounter with the kids, one day Stephen hears a knock at the cellar door. It's just like a small little doop doop doop. So he goes up to the door and he's like, "Hello." And he finds out that the person on the other side of the door is the little boy that was outside. <gasps> and the little boy says, hi, I'm Andrew. What's your name? Oh. And so he tells him, I'm Stephen. And uh, they just start talking back and forth. And he finds out that Andrew is his brother. Oh. Now we find out that not only Andrew is his brother, Andrew is six. He also has a sister named Jane, who's four. And then the baby brother was named Billy. And he was under one around this time. Okay. Now, Andrew asks Stephen, how old are you? Now, Stephen says, I think seven, because remember, he has no concept of time. He doesn't know how to count that up. Oh, yeah. He's living in a dark, damn cellar. The last time he heard his name or his age was, you know, at the first time he broke his arm. At the hospital, yeah. Yeah, so he's just like seven? Seven, question mark? I don't know. Andrew was like, oh, no, you can't be. You're much older than me, and I'm seven. So I think you're like nine or 10. So now Stephen's like, oh, okay, so I'm older than seven. So I'm like somewhere between nine and 10. Mm-hmm. Now, Andrew asks Stephen, why are you down there? And Stephen says, I don't know. And Andrew's response was, you must be really bad. Are you kidding? Oh, they've indoctrinated the children. But he's What but the fuck? You have to think like, okay, a seven-year-old. If I was seven and like, these kids had no idea that there was a freaking child living in their cellar. A boy in the basement, yeah. So if he, like, you have to think, if there's somebody living in there, they must be a really bad person if, like, they're not allowed to come out because that must be a punishment and I get punished for certain things. So I can see where, like, a seven-year-old's mind would just, like, instantly go to that. I can I can see that. Yeah. But still, like, Stephen's probably, like, I guess I am really bad. Like, why am I down here? I just wonder if they told those kids, if you're bad, if you don't listen to mommy and daddy, you go down there with like all these monsters and bad things. And like, I don't know. Considering 
how Stephen was treated, I wouldn't be shocked. Like that would strike me one bit. You know, makes sense. Now, after meeting his siblings through the door, he grew more and more resentful of them getting to live upstairs. And he decided that he was just going to be the bad boy his dad made him out to be. He was just like, fuck it, I'm done. So he started escaping the cellar every fucking chance he could get. Now, the dad knew he was escaping the cellar, so the dad decided that he was going to put a padlock on the pantry, but he never put a padlock on the cellar. Now, my theory is that the dad didn't put the padlock on the cellar door because he wanted Stephen to escape so that it was an excuse for him to beat him, but he didn't want him to have access to the food. Yeah, he didn't want him to have any of the rewards of the escape, but he Mm -hmm. wanted a reason, like even more of a reason. If He didn't have a reason before, but even more to be like, this is what makes you so bad because you go out of your way to do this or something. I don't know. Yeah, it was like he used it to justify because he's a fucking... uh, So one day he was fed up and wanted to know why he was in the cellar. Stephen was done with this. And he knew his dad wouldn't answer any of his questions. So he decided that he was going to ask his mom. And so she came down to bring him uh, some food and he bombarded her with questions. Why do I live down here? Why can't I live upstairs with the other kids? Can I live upstairs? Please, I promise I'll be good. Can I please live upstairs? He's just one after the other, after the other, after the other. Good, good. She never answers. She just looks at him in fear and just starts crying. And then she goes upstairs. That's it. And then from that day forward, he never hears or sees his mom again. Wait, no, like... That was the... Never, never. That was the last time he ever had any interaction with his mother. Oh, my God. She came upstairs crying and he killed her. Oh, my God. I don't know that. Allegedly. We, we, I think we think she left. I think that's the theory. She left? She, mm-hmm. And left her child? Are you I know. Me? Mother I know. of the year. Mm. Right. So after his dad noticed that Stephen's teeth had started to fall out, because eventually he's going to notice, like, it's very evident. So he finds out that Stephen's teeth are falling out and he decides that like, oh yeah, you're growing up, your body's going through stuff. So like maybe you should start learning about the world and your body. So he goes upstairs and he grabs some papers out of an encyclopedia, literally just like opens an encyclopedia, rips out some papers about like the teeth falling out and baby teeth and how you're born (laughs) with two teeth and like all of that. And he brings them back down and so Stephen can read about them and learn. Does Stephen know how to read? Yeah, because he's homeschooled. Okay, yeah, he is homeschooled. Okay. He's homeschooled. Yeah. yeah, so he's getting an education. As like fucked up as the situation is, he's getting an education. Weird. Don't know why. Never get an answer to that, unfortunately. And then from that day on, his dad would like bring down encyclopedias or chunks of books. And so like, he's literally in the cellar every hour, every minute of every day. And so he's just consuming and consuming and consuming and consuming all the books and like encyclopedias that his dad brings down. He's not bringing him the Berenstein Bears. He's bringing uh-huh. him educational books. So he's... Real content here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's All he has to do is learn. So he's learning. Okay. Now we find out that Stevens are right around like the age of 13. And uh, this is a very sad story. Uh, one day, it's not even sad. It's just cool. So one day the dad unlocks the cellar door and opens it but he decides to walk away. He doesn't go down to the cellar. So Stephen's like, do I leave? Do I not leave? I'm kind of scared. Is he going to attack me? But curiosity got the best of him and he decided to leave the cellar. 
Now, as he's leaving the cellar, he doesn't see or hear anything. And so he decides to walk through the house and go to the backyard. Now, when he goes into the backyard, his dad ends up attacking him with a <sighs> shovel. What? The, like literally hits him on the back with the shovel. The boy falls over, Stephen falls over. And next thing he knows, he's passed out. And his dad then had to take him to the hospital. Like he, I think, I don't know if he says he came to in the car or like at the hospital. So he takes him to the hospital and he tell the dad tells the doctors that he fell on a tent peg, like playing with his siblings. They got a little rambunctious and he fell over on a tent peg. <sighs> no, his dad hit him with like the shovel part of a shovel and like literally split his back open and like caused a major injury. Now, due to this injury, it was pretty severe. Stephen ended up having to stay in the hospital overnight. Now there was no visitors allowed. So the dad had to go home and the mm. boy and Stephen had to stay in the hospital. Okay. Escape, escape, escape. Okay. Stephen is terrified. Oh no. So he doesn't say anything and he but he also doesn't interact with the other kids. Like there was like some game areas and stuff and the other kids were over there and they nurses tried to get him to go over there and he was like, I'm fine. Mm. He also had longer hair and the nurses could tell that his long hair was very matted and it needed brushed and he was very dirty. So they came over and they were helping him like, like coming to his room, to his bedside and like cleaning him up and brushing his hair and telling him how beautiful his hair was and stuff and trying to get him to play with the kids, but he didn't, he didn't want to. And he was still too scared. So he doesn't bring up the abuse or what really happened. Mm -hmm. And then after that, he leaves the hospital and he goes home. Now, soon after this hospital visit, Stephen's dad was required to take him to Darby Royal Infirmary. We are not sure why or how that came about, but because of the series of events, my theory is that the nurses at the hospital... Yeah, they said something. ...who helped clean him up and brushed his hair, like they saw the bruises, they saw the matting, they could tell he was neglected, and like I'm sure they were like... He was probably mm. really, really malnourished. Yeah. Malnourished. Like he was still being fed, but probably uh, not. Yeah. Like, I'm pretty sure it was not, he was not getting what those siblings were getting. Yeah. A thousand percent no. So when he takes Stephen to this uh, Darby Royal Infirmary, he mm -hmm. sits down, the dad and Stephen with, and they sit down with a specific doctor. Now, the dad tells this doctor that, you know, he has to hit Stephen to control him. He's just out of control. So like, I have to hit him to control him. So after they talk, Stephen was then sent to see another talk, a doctor to be assessed. Now, the dad protests this and he wants to like go with him, but they're like, no, Stephen needs to go by himself. So it's very clear that they, they're, they're suspicious. On. Yeah, they're yeah. suspicious something's going on. Now, the doctor started in interviewing Stephen and it took a while for Stephen to open up, but the doctor was able to make Stephen feel safe eventually and he broke and he tells the doctor, everything. I live in a cellar. I'm beaten. He's broke me. He hit me with a shovel, this, that. He just like, wow. And one of the ways that he was able to like get Stephen to feel comfortable was he told him about patient doctor confidentiality. Like what you say here is... I can't tell anybody what you tell me here. Exactly. So it's safe here. You're good. And that made Stephen comfortable enough. Like it's not going to get back to my dad. Yes. So he tells him everything. Now the doctor sends him home and... <laughs> With, yeah, sends him home. 
I'm assuming they have to do some kind of like investigation and stuff. Well, after a handful of days, Stephen is taken back to the same doctor again. Now, this time, uh, the head doctor sits down with the dad and Stephen, like in front of each other. They're all sitting down together. And the doctor looks at the dad and says, I need you to stop hitting Stephen. Now, Stephen's freaking out like, patient, Dr. Confidentiality, why are you saying anything? He's internally like, he's going to know I said something. And the dad says like, what did he tell you? And the doctor says, he didn't tell me anything. I can just tell that he's terrified and you need to stop hitting him. And the dad gets mad and he tells the doctor that to fuck off and he yells at him and he grabs Stephen and he leaves. Well, Stephen goes back, gets put in the cellar and life returns to normal. (laughs) days go by and Steven's getting angrier and angrier. I told somebody about the abuse. I told them what I'm going through and I'm still here. He was old enough to understand this is not right. This is not normal. And that nobody's caring. It feels like nobody's caring me. Yeah, like somebody should have saved me. Like this isn't okay. I know that much. This is not okay. I should have been saved. And he's mad, 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 mad. And then one day, he starts hearing all this noise going on upstairs. And then he starts hearing his father yelling, you can't do this. This is my house. Get out of my house. And then all of a sudden the cellar door opens and he sees people walking downstairs and then quickly realizes it's not his dad. It's people he's never met before. Come to find out it is a police officer and a social worker. Yes. They had come to save Stephen from the cellar. (laughs) Now, At first, Stephen is very overwhelmed and terrified. He's getting put in a car with strangers. He's never, you know, been out of the cellar, but for a handful of times. Mm -hmm. And so he is very overwhelmed. Now, as they drive him away from the home, he starts to panic and actually has the thought of like, I just want to go back to the cellar. Mm -hmm. And the social worker can see that Stephen's like freaking out at this point. And so she tries to comfort him and she tells him, you're safe now. We, you know, are taking you away. We're saving you. You're going to go to a better place. Mm-hmm. And this starts to like put him at ease. Now, they also took his siblings away. Okay. So his siblings were taken. Now, he, Stephen was taken to a place called Ashley House while his siblings were put into foster care. Now, he was mad. Like, why don't I get to go with my siblings? Like, I know I don't really know them, but like, why is there a diff, like why are we being dif- differentiated with he was told that he was a quote feral child meaning what? yeah meaning he wouldn't be able to <laughs> integrate into a normal family since he'd lived in the cellar his entire life he didn't know what it was like to be a part of a family I mean, so valid but you can't you wouldn't know how to integrate but they didn't even give him the chance that's yeah that's true what's that's wrong like, with you so fucked up. I was like, okay, so he gets to go to this place called Ashley House. Now, at Ashley House, it was like a boy's home kind of okay. place. Now, it took Stephen some time to get used to living outside the cellar. Uh, many days he wished he was back there because it was his safe mm-hmm. place. The vast openness, the big rooms were just very overwhelming to him and he didn't know how to cope with it. Um, the brightness, like, you know, the cellar's dark. So the brightness of everything. Dark and damp. And now it's light and dry. What do I do with Yeah. That? What do I do with this? How do I cope? And he's... And then his eyes having to adjust too after so many years of like yes. being in a darker place. I bet that kind of hurt maybe. Yes. So he's like 13, yeah, 13, 14-ish, somewhere around this age, 
but he did get, he did enjoy like the fact that he got to have like some first time experiences, which mm-hmm. was he had, he got to have his first proper bath. Oh. He had bathed in a bucket his entire life up That's to this right. point. So he gets to have his first bath. He got his very first pair of pajamas. Heavenly. He's like, wait, I, I get to take off these clothes and put on pajamas. Like, this is the shit. And he actually got to look at himself in a mirror. He didn't know what he looked like. He didn't know what he looked like. He had never looked at himself in a mirror. It's like all this stuff, when he puts it into perspective, it's like, holy shit. I would have never thought about that. But yeah. I wonder what he thought about himself. Um, I'm not going to give it away because it is in the book and I want everybody to go buy the book because it's so good. And so okay. there's more details and about his story. The, but I'm leaving it out on purpose because I want you to go buy his book okay. Okay. and read his book because <laughs> it's so good. Okay, at Ashley House, he kept to himself. Uh, he made it a point to not tell the other boys about living in a cellar. He didn't want to feel more like an outcast than he already did at this point. Now, after arriving, doctors started to give Stephen multiple tests to try to like figure out like where you're at, where he's at intellectually. Doctors quickly realized that for a boy who grew up in a cellar, he was actually very smart. They started to give him tests that were tied to Mensa, which is a high IQ organization. Adults normally score between 40 to 100, yeah, 40 to 140. Stephen scored 150. Yep, that's right. Right? Doctors labeled him as exceptionally brilliant and hyper-creative. Now, during Stephen's time there, the staff and doctors were fascinated by him, right? Like this kid lived in a cellar and he's this educated. Well, yeah, he lived in a cellar. He didn't have anything else to fucking do. Nothing else to do but encyclopedia. For some some reason, his dad was like, you're going to get an education. Like, why? You're not letting him out of the cellar, which I'm glad The only good thing I can say about that man is that he gave this boy books. Yeah, that's the only thing. Like, can we castrate him and send him to Hades? Let's do more than that. I'm on board. Seriously. <laughs> Seriously. Okay. Uh, so he's so, ultra IQ, smart, ultra, super ultra, kid? Ultra fucking smart. And doctors are fascinated by him. And so they're asking him constantly to draw because they're also like, he's a really good drawer. Mm-hmm. So they're asking him all of this and everything. Well, after being at this hospital or this uh, Ashley house. After being at Ashley house, I think it was more like a boy's home. Um, he was only there for a couple weeks. And then he was transferred to a place called Aston Hall Hospital. Now, he immediately did not like this. Uh, the nurse that showed him around was a man and he was snappy and rude. And so it made him very uncomfortable just walking into this place. Get the fuck out of healthcare if you're like that. Honestly. Fucking serious, seriously. Stephen... I say, I've noticed, sidebar, I say seriously all the time. I need to pick a new word. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) The way I said that, I sounded like Lumpy the Space Princess. Seriously, then. Oh, oh my glob. I have no idea who that is. Okay, well, a bunch of people are going to laugh at that. Oh my glob. And they're going to understand the age gap between us. I'm 32 (laughs) going on 33 and you're 25. So like there's, (laughs) there's that age gap there, guys. Yeah. We're, we're showing our age for sure. We're showing okay. our age for sure. <laughs> okay. Stephen was very confused walking around this place called Aston Hall. He did not understand why they had to unlock doors 
and relock them, like going from one part to another. So he's like, this is weird. In his dormitory, there were 20 beds. So he's just looking around at that. And then he sees that the door, the windows, sorry, the windows are open, but they only open just like a couple inches and that's as far as they open. But he notices coming from the windows are these awful screams and hoots and hollers and just a lot of weird noises. So he's like, Mm -hmm. what the hell is this? So he walks over to the window and he looks out and he sees a cage, which is like, not really a cage, well, I guess you call it a cage, but it's like a fenced off area and it's full of people and some are naked, some are banging their heads against the, the fences, some are jacking off, some are just rocking back and forth. And it's, I mean, pandemonium of a group of people and he's highly confused and does not understand what he's looking at. I thought this is where it was gonna get good, God. Yeah, you and me both, sweetheart. You and me both. Uh, As he's looking out this window, the nurse that's showing him around walks up behind him as he's looking out this window and pins Stephen up against the window and says in his ear, be a good boy or you'll get put with the crazies and they would eat you up. Over my dead body. Where the fuck am I? That's what I'd be thinking. What is this? Is this an insane asylum? Is this a... yeah? He ends up finding out that it is the that ward where the the quote unquote crazies are. But he's ultra smart and like not to say. Okay, I'm sorry. I just made a generalization about <laughs> people that have to go to. Listen, I've worn the grippy socks. Don't come for I, me. <laughs> I, don't I have the cup and the grippy socks. But <laughs> we need to make a shirt that says <laughs> I have the cup and grippy. <laughs> don't come for me. I have the grippy socks and the cup. No, but like, uh, I'm sorry. How do I articulate? I thought they were recognizing this is an ultra genius boy Mm -hmm. that's just been neglected. Like this Mm -hmm. isn't, I mean, I'm sure he's like mentally a bit um, neglected. Emotionally (laughs) delayed. Yeah, emotionally delayed, not quite processing certain human interactions because he's not aware of what they are. Traumatized. And traumatized, yeah. So why is he here? That's, that's a wonderful question. Okay. Uh, we don't know, but we have some theories and you will probably connect those theories and Great. make those theories yourself as we go on. Can't wait. <laughs> yeah. So he didn't know what kind of hospital this was. Right? Remember, he has no concept of any kind of hospital besides getting his arm fixed or his back. Like injury. Mm-hmm. You're injured, you go to the hospital. Yeah. He doesn't understand mental illnesses. But now he's he's understanding them as he spends more time in this hospital. So he realizes that all the boys here are drugged with a drug called Largactyl, which apparently is a medication used to treat depression and many other illnesses. I don't know if it's still used today. We're back in the like, I think 70s or 80s around this time. Yeah. So he ends up finding out that this is a mental hospital for quote, mental defectives is what they call them in England at this time. Now, many staff members would take the boys to the bathroom and they would beat them. But Stephen found friendship with one male nurse. This nurse was kind. He brought Stephen books and introduced him to music. Stephen had never heard music before. And the staff knew that he had grown up in the cellar, but not the other boys and stuff within the mental hospital. And so... I have something real quick about that 
medication, Largactin mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called chlorpromazine, and it's mm-hmm. an antipsychotic. They still mm. use it today. It also treats tetanus and blood disorders. Oh, shit. But that's a strong drug to be given all these boys. Yeah, it's it's for like really strong behavioral disorders, apparently. It can reduce anxiety. They give it to people before surgery. So it's like a major antipsychotic. Oh, so they were like real drugging. They were drugging these kids. So he knew Stephen grew up in the cellar. And so he introduced Stephen to music. Stephen head over heels, loved fucking music. Mm -hmm. He was like, this is the shit. And the nurse brought him a record player and he gave (sighs) him some records and he gave it to them, gave it to Steven. Now this record player, these records, Steven's pride and joy, he protected them with, you know, his entire life. He's like, don't touch my shit. Like, this is mine. He loved it. Now, some of the books that the nurse brought him were about the occult. Now he was fascinated with the occult and he had always been drawing monsters. Like he had always seen his dad as a monster and now he's learning about the occult, the devil. And so he gets into that and he starts drawing the devil. And he's realizes like this whole time he was drawing monsters, he was drawing the devil and that's who he saw his dad as. Like his dad was the devil. Yeah. Now at the hospital, he attended school, but it was on the grounds of the hospital. So it was a school attached to the hospital. Okay. Now he was so far ahead of all the other kids because fucking genius, right? That within mm-hmm. a few weeks, he had read through the entire school library. And so they just kind of left him to do his own thing. <laughs> it was kind of like, we don't know what to fucking do with you. You're too damn smart. So he would, you know, just draw. And in our class, he drew magnificent, huge pieces. There were multiple nurses that he would like give art to and everything. They were very dark in nature. Come on. Like he doesn't have a life full of sunshine and rainbows. Like what else do you expect the boy to fucking draw. What else is going to manifest from him but that? Yeah. Right. Well, the headmistress of the school didn't like this. And one day came up to Stephen and just started beating the shit out of him until like other staff had to pull her off. And he finds out later that the reason that she came up and beat him was because she said that his drawings were satanic and that somebody needed to beat it out of him. That's funny because there are some satanic things in her that I'd love to beat out of her. Right. <laughs> right. Ugh. What are these, who raised these people? Honestly, like who hurt you? <laughs> yeah, emotionally immature people, I guess. I uh, Boomers? Well, what would they, yeah, they're raised by boomers. Thousand percent. Yep. Love it. Well, okay. as time went on, uh, Stephen started to make friends with some of the other boys and it didn't take him long to start hearing about, quote, treatments from the other kids. Now, Stephen was desperate to find out what this whole treatment thing was. And so he kind of wanted to like prepare himself for this. So he started asking, but no one would answer him. And then finally, a kid said, they were like all kind of sitting at a group. I think it was like lunch or dinner or dip breakfast. Something. They're sitting at a table. And he asked them, finally, a kid says, Dr. Milner drugs and touches you. Now, Stephen thinks that this was just a joke. And so he's like, ah, but then he looks up and he sees all the boys like shifting in their seat, looking really awkward. And the another boy speaks up and says, it's all true. And then another boy quickly changes the subject and they move on. So Steven realizes like, oh shit, like I, now he's more terrified. He's like, I don't know how to prepare for this. Now I'm more terrified because apparently I'm getting drugged and going to get touched. And what does that look like? Uh, he's freaking out. 
Now, there was another boy who had been at the treatment center for about a year. And so Stephen was talking to him a few days later and he asked the boy if he had ever had treatment. The boy said he had had it three times, but he told Stephen that some people had had it one time. It all just depended on who the doctor would pick. Now, Stephen asked the boy, like, how do I know if I'm being picked? And he's like, well, before you get treatment, they don't want you to have any tea. So when it's tea time, they'll tell you you're not allowed to have tea. And that's when you know you've been chosen for treatment that night. So treatment was so traumatizing that some boys had tried to escape. One boy escaped and hot-wired a car, but crashed it into a tree. Now, he's finding all of this out from... So close. So uh, close. He uh, is finding all of this out from the other boys at the facility. Now, the boys at the hospital believed that the kid had crashed the car on purpose because there were no brake marks on the road. And I'm pretty sure this kid was in the mental hospital for, like, stealing cars. And so he knew how to break. He, <laughs> he, he knew, knew how to drive a car. This wasn't his first time behind a car. So they think he crashed on purpose so that <sighs> when he was caught, eventually he knew he was never going to be able to like fully get away as a kid. And so he's like, if I just crash it and die, I don't have, they won't send me back. Oh They're, my Lord. Oof, yeah. There was another rumor that three boys who were working on the yard by the lake just walked themselves into the lake and drown themselves. Now, this was never proven. This was like a rumor, but this was something he had heard at this time. Now, before we go more into Stephen's situation, we're going to talk about Dr. Milner. Like, who is this fucking doctor, okay? He was the head doctor at Aston Hall, but before this, he worked at Broadmoor Psychiatric Hospital. Do you know Broadmoor? Are you familiar with I it? I know nothing about this. What is this? Okay, so Broadmoor Psychiatric Hospital. Um, it is one of, if not the most infamous psychiatric hospital in the world. It is the place that has like housed some of the most prolific serial killers. Most notoriously, Peter Sutcliffe, who is the Yorkshire Ripper. So in England area, if you were a serial killer, most likely you went to Broadmoor. Like that's most likely. So he was a doctor there. Now, Stephen, just three weeks after his arrival, he got the terrifying news that he wasn't allowed to have tea, meaning he had been chosen for treatment. The nurse that told him that he was chosen for treatment actually grinned. Like, you <gasps> fucking bitch. Like, ugh. Stephen confided in a friend that he had been chosen for treatment and the friend replied, it's gonna fuck you up, Stephen. I know. Lola what just a way to prepare like, for it, though. Okay. Like shocked look on her face. Yeah. Yeah. How do you prepare for this? You don't prepare for it. You just walk <sighs> into it with. You just throw. No, you fear. piss yourself so that they don't want to touch yeah. you. That's what you do. You no, throw you have up and you have explosive diarrhea. You have explosive diarrhea. <laughs> you eat the thing you're allergic to. You heard yeah. me. I'm allergic to exactly. multiple food things. That That's my dinner. Take your pick. <laughs> Here we mm. go. Yeah. <sighs> yep. Well, before treatment. <sighs> okay. Before treatment, Stephen is given two white pills an hour before, and then he is bathed, weighed, and then next he is forced to strip down and is taken into the treatment room. He's made to lay on a mattress covered in thick plastic, and then he is covered in a hospital sheet. So mattress covered in thick plastic, naked Stephen, hospital sheet over him. As he laid on this mattress, completely fucking terrified, mind you, Dr. Mildner 
strolls into the room, pushing a white trolley with different machines, syringes, and a whole bunch of shit that Stephen's like, what the fuck is this? And he comes over to Stephen. Now he gives Stephen a shot and he then placed a wire mask on his face and dripped ether onto it, forcing Stephen to breathe in ether. Now ether, when inhaled, can cause, <laughs> it, it can cause uh, uh, drowsiness, dizziness, irregular breathing, and more. But when it's exposed in high volumes, it can cause you to go unconscious. Agreed. Now, okay. <laughs> I I read through this earlier, and I'm pretty sure that I don't mention this. So I'm going to mention it here. Now, the shot that he got in the arm, that was uh, the truth serum. Now, after the shot, he was at, uh, he, this doctor, Dr. Milner, asked Stephen if his dad did anything to him sexually. Stephen says no, but then he quickly loses consciousness. Now, he woke up later and his feet and arms hurt and he realizes that he had been tied up when he was unconscious. Oh, gross. Oh, gross. Yeah. Okay. True Serum says it's, apparently it's a bunch of different types of It's a of bunch drugs. of different things. Okay, let Bar- me... It's a barbiturate. Yes. Sodium thipenthal. Gosh, guys, I can't speak or shit, but sodium thipenthal. However the fuck you say that. That's what they were given. <laughs> that's, the, that's the True Serum they were given. So he is given the True Serum, he is asked if his dad did anything to him sexually as he's breathing in this ether and the ether is in such a high dose, it's making, he passes out. He wakes up, he finds out his feet and his arms are hurting and he realizes that he's tied up when he was unconscious. Now, shortly after his first treatment, he was chosen again. Now, <sighs> fortunately, Stephen was one of the few boys who got treatment one to two times a week. Now, remember that guy who had been at this treatment center or at this mental hospital for a year, he had only gotten treatment three times Yeah, in his entire year. And now Stephen, for some fucking reason, is being chosen to get treatment one to two times a week. There is no God. There is no God. Seriously, that's like, how could you ever believe in a God if this was what was happening? And if there is... He's going to have to beg for that person's forgiveness. No offense if like that's, if you believe in a God, like that's your thing. But like, I can understand. I'm sorry, but in my head right now, you don't, that doesn't have to be your truth. But my truth right now is God has to beg for forgiveness from Stephen at this point in time. There's there's no other way around it. Say it louder. Say it louder. Like, so his treatments were the same, same scenario that I just mapped out for you guys. It was the same thing over and over again. So gets naked, he gets bathed, all that stuff, gets naked, gets on the bed. He gets the shot and then he gets the ether mask and then he gets asked these weird sexual questions like, did your dad do anything for you? To, did your dad do anything to you sexually? And Stephen would answer no. And then eventually he would pass out and go unconscious. My question is like, why the fuck are you giving them a truth serum shot and then asking them questions while also making them breathe in ether that's going to make them pass out. Like, what the fuck is the point? That also seems counterintuitive to me. If they're actually looking for an answer. I don't know if they're looking for an answer, though. I'm like, I'm so fucking confused. So, suspicious. if we're going to, you know, copyright Bailey Sarian. Bailey Sarian, suspicious. insert here. (laughs) Right. So, the second time he went for treatment, he woke up in pain. His butt mm-hmm. and his back of his legs were throbbing and covered in welts, and he realizes that he had been whipped. He has no idea with what, but he'd been whipped. 
Now, after a few more treatments, he woke up one time with his anus hurting. And at that point, he knew that Dr. Milner had raped him. So while he was at Aston Hall, he was regularly visited by social workers. That was just how they you know, checked up on him to make sure everything was going good. Stephen was terrified and he didn't want to say anything. He didn't think they would believe him. And so he didn't say anything when these social workers would come. Well, one day, he, uh, one social worker shows up and they informed Stephen that his mom had died. <gasps> and he was kind of shocked, but also he felt nothing. He wasn't sad. He wasn't emotional, which I think he says in the book, like it kind of threw off the staff. Like they expected him to have this like major emotional reaction. Mm. And he was like, I only saw her a handful of times in my entire life. I never had any kind of connection with her. So it's, it's, it would be the same as if like we had an acquaintance that somebody called us and we're like, you met this person like three times and oh my gosh, they're dead. Okay. I feel bad. Like, oh, that's sad. Like, I'm not going to cry though. Right. I didn't have a relationship with the person, you know? And so like, yeah, that's fucking sad that he didn't have a relationship with his mom, but she's dead. And he was like, okay, whatever, moving on. Like, how am I supposed to react, right? Well, Stephen, after that, he still goes back to life as normal in this horrific hellhole that is Aston Hall. And he endured this horrific nightmare of treatments by Dr. Milner for 16 months before he was moved to a Catholic school called St. William's. Stop right here. Why does it keep getting worse? I know. All I had to say was Catholic school and everyone's like, fuck! That was enough. Because we know exactly where this a is going. Albert and fucking Albert Fish. Where, yeah. where your mind went, like, yes, that is, that is where we're going with this story. Great. Mm-hmm. I needed a seatbelt for this whole story, and you did not tell me. So, oh, sorry. <laughs> Trigger I'm going through the fucking windshield of this thing. <laughs> this, when I tell you, I probably finished this book because I do audiobooks. When I found, I don't even know how I found this book. When I finished this book, I think I finished it in like two days because I like could not put it down because it was like, like, what is the next thing? Like, there can't be any more. Like, come on. Now, uh, St. Williams, it was a boarding school for boys, and the headmaster was a man called Brother James. Ugh, I'm going to throw up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm throw up. Okay. At first, on. Stephen was actually excited. He was like, I get to live in a school, not a hospital, no more locked doors, no more being drugged, no more treatments by Dr. Milner. This is going to be great. It, to him, felt like an escape. Again, Stephen thought he was being saved. But in reality, he was going from one nightmare to another. Reality hit Stephen pretty quickly after arriving because he found out that Brother James wasn't the man of God that he portrayed himself to be. While sitting with some of the boys, uh, he started to hear stories about how some of the boys who, who had been there before had tried to escape. And this was confusing because why would people want to escape? Like, sure, it's not the best situation. It's a school and like, you don't have a family, but like, <laughs> you're not getting treatments by Dr. Milner. So like, this isn't, why would you want to escape? He's confused. Mm-hmm. And he hears stories that apparently two kids, uh, one was 10 and then the other one was 12. They were digging a hole in some kind of like garage or shed that had like a whole bunch of sand or stuff in it. And they were digging a hole and in when they were like hiding in this hole, it caved in and it ended up killing them both. <gasps> there was another boy um, whose name was George and he was like, fuck this shit. And he hung himself in the courtyard and ended his life. 
Now, this confused Stephen a lot. And he asked them, like all the other boys, like, why? Why would the kids be digging a hole and hiding in it? Why was it so bad that this kid decided to end his life over it? Now, one boy replied, they did it because of what Brother James had done to them. But Stephen still didn't understand until he started looking around at the other boys when this was said. And he quickly realized what they meant, but just by like how the boys were acting, squirming, turning their heads. And he realizes that Brother James was sexually assaulting all of the boys. It was rumored that the reason the kids had dug that hole is they were trying to hide from Brother James so that he couldn't find them to abuse them. And then that's how the hole caved in and then they passed away. Now, the place that Stephen thought he had finally found safety was really another place where he was just going to endure horrific fucking trauma. So after a while, Stephen was allowed to go to the secondary school. Now, this was the school that was like basically like in town and it was all the staff members from this like school, their kids got to go to this school. Mm, Because Stephen was so smart, he didn't have to do the school, like the Catholic school, school part. He got to go to the secondary school. Now, this was like a double-edged sword because the kids at the Catholic boarding school were making fun of him and beating him up for getting to go to the secondary school. And then at the (sighs) secondary school, kids were beating him up and making fun of him for having to live at the Catholic school at St. Williams. So it was a double-edged sword. The torture will not end for this person. I swear. I I swear to God. This Is there a light? At the end of the tunnel. So Stephen right now is around 15 years old. So one day, a staff member notified Stephen that Brother James wanted to see him. Stephen says his stomach drops because he knows why he's being asked to go to Brother James's office. And he has no choice. This is, this is where he's put, this is where he has to live. He has nowhere else to go. He's a ward of the state. He has to do what they're asking. So he has to go up to Brother James's office. Now, he enters Brother James's office and Brother James says, my special boy, it's a privilege to go to the secondary school. You're the first to go. Did you know that? Stephen replies with no. And then Brother James says, that's why you're my special boy. I'm throwing up right, right now. Cringe. Fucking this is cringe. Enough. Now, as he's saying this, Brother James circles around Stephen and while standing behind him, he puts one hand around and pushes Stephen's head up And then with his other hand, he reaches around and sticks it down Stephen's pants. Now, Stephen immediately fights back, but Brother James overpowers him and whispers, whispers or says in his ear, don't you ever forget, I have the power of life and death over you. So be a good boy and do what you're told. The elbow is the strongest point in the body. I need everyone to know that right now. I don't know how one of the boys at this school didn't get their hands on some kind of weapon and just mass murder the men that did this to them. Like, I mean, to be honest, this is how, you know, you get fire in prison, you know? Like, you make it. You make it yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's, you take out the man, you know? I ain't saying it's right, but I understand it. Right? I don't, I, yeah, don't kill anyone. But at the same time, like, I, think I don't we're understand. we're going to put that on a shirt next. I ain't saying it's right. Yeah, right. 
<laughs> so I don't know how many times I've said that. Yeah, that's saying it's right. But like, I could make the connection. I could understand. So Stephen is young. He's helpless. And he was taken advantage of again. Now, Stephen says, quote, this time without the small courtesy of being unconscious. Mm. When Dr. Milner did the treatments, he was unconscious. So he had the idea after the treatments of like, okay, yeah, I know I was raped, but I don't remember any don't of it. Remember I didn't it have to live through the actual physical act of all of this happening to my body. Now he was forced to know, see, and feel every part of the abuse time after time after time. And unfortunately, it wasn't just Brother James. It was a sick fucking pedophile group of people because somehow they all find each other. I don't fucking know how. And it they just used the school and used these boys as their disgusting hunting ground to take advantage of these boys. It wasn't a school. It was sex trafficking. That's yeah, what it a is. a thousand percent. It was sex trafficking with the facade of religion and a boys' school. Wow, send them here. We'll make them well-rounded. No, what you'll do is you'll mm-hmm. traumatize them so that they'll, in turn, traumatize their children. And then the cycle moves on. And now we have my biological mother. She said what she said. I'll say it louder, too. Yeah, say it louder. So, so this sick fuck was so... Ugh. He would, like, pick out Stephen and, like, a couple other boys, and he actually would make them go swimming with him naked in a pool. This is the time in which you all should escape because water makes people a lot slower. Yeah. But, but he would, he told his boys a story about how a kid was running and fell and cracked his head open. And he like terrified them so that they wouldn't run away when they were swimming because they were wet, you know? So like no running around the swimming pool because you'll fall and die. Well, when the abuse would happen, Stephen would do what is called dissociate. So this was his way of just trying to escape the room. If you don't know what dissociation is, it is a survival mechanism that many people will use who endure repetitive abuse. A lot of times it's more used for um, like sexual abuse is when you'll really hear it being talked about, but it's still used when like, like let's say you lived in a household where it was just like, your parents fought all the time and you had to listen to them fighting. During those times of them fighting, you would dissociate. And basically what it is, is you trying to take your mind and send it to an alternate place so that you can escape the reality of what's going on. So. And this is often done like un, involuntarily. Is that the Yeah, you thing? don't plan to, yeah. Yeah, you don't plan Say, to do okay, it. Okay, now it's time to go to the beach. No, like it just like, Mm-hmm. it's a trauma response. You just automatically do it to cope exactly. with what's about to happen because your body knows this is bad. It's your brain's way of saying, oh shit, this is too much. Okay, I can't handle this. This is too much. I'm going to go over here. It's it, literally a survival. Exactly. It is a survival mechanism because our brains are fucking amazing and wild and we still don't know half the shit it can do. Hello, brain. Serious. You see, I did it again. So <laughs> unfortunately... <laughs> Stephen was one of the chosen ones, just like he was at Aston Hall. One day when he was called to Brother James's office, there was another man there. And this time, Stephen was violently raped by both of them, Brother James and this other man. After this, Stephen was regularly abused at least at minimum one time a week. This was his life. Scared to tell a social worker, of course, 
because who's going to believe him? Now, even in more so, he's in a religious school. So like he's having to go up against those kind of reputations. But enough was enough. And one day a social worker came to take Stephen out to buy him some new clothes. They got in the car and as they started to drive, he couldn't take it anymore. And he told her everything. He just said, they touch us, rape us, and the staff beats us. Unfortunately, she didn't believe him. She said, Brother James is a lovely man. You could get yourself in trouble saying such nasty things about a man of God. Uh He (laughs) kept on. I know, we're laughing because it's like... uh, That's so ridiculous. How many times have we heard this? Like being a man of God makes you a good person. Uh, and, And statistically... Statistically, white men that subscribe to any type of religion end up you know, committing more crimes than the latter. Especially pedophilia. Now, Stephen wasn't letting it go. He was incessant trying to get her to believe him. And she was angry. How dare you accuse this man? He is a man of God. So she gets so mad. She's just like, no, and turns the car around and takes him back. Like they barely got going. And he's taken back to St. Williams. Now, as he's coming back, Like he's still trying to get her to believe him. And so he's making a lot of noise and the staff hear him and they hear what he's accusing. And so he gets taken inside and beaten for making these accusations by the staff. So Just like dad, just like dad. Just like like dad. Mm. Well, one day uh, the boys were playing football outside, but Stephen like didn't really want to play. He's like, yeah, whatever. So he snuck away from the field and was like kind of hiding because he wanted to like sneak a cigarette. And when this is when he sees a man that was nicknamed Sailor John. We don't know the real name of this man. He was nicknamed Sailor John. Now he's sitting on a bench with Brother James and they do not realize that Stephen can overhear their conversation. They don't even know that Stephen's there. And he overhears them talking about the boys playing football. They're basically just, you know, eye-candying all of the boys. Now, as he's watching this, he sees Sailor John pick out one of the boys and lead over to Brother James and say, I want that one. And Brother James says, I'll send him by to you later. Stephen knew the boy that he had picked out. It was a boy named Sam. And Stephen was desperate to warn this kid. So after football, they all go inside and I think it was like dinner time or something around that, like that. And so he goes in and he's trying to find him amongst the crowd of kids and he can't, but he sees Sam's friend. So he's like, hey, where's Sam? And the friend's like, oh, I saw staff take him away. Damn it. And he was like, fuck, I was too late. Now, after... Sam is assaulted by Sailor John and whoever. We don't know what happened there, but we know he was assaulted massively. After that, he was put into a room for two days to recover. It was that bad. That's disgusting. The whole right. thing's disgusting anyway. And you can't, you can't tell me this staff that was like beating these kids, they didn't fucking know about this shit. They kept quiet. Like, I, you can't fucking tell me that this kid had to go in a room and recover for two days and you don't know why. What year was this happening in? Or you said the 70s? We are around the 70s-80s-ish time frame. Yeah. Okay, let's take note. That's not that far back. No. It's not that far back. 40 years. We still have a long way to go with all this yeah. shit. That's like, yeah, we're more aware of it now. We're still not doing enough, though. Just jot that down. Yep. Now, after his assault and after he got out of that room after two days, Stephen said Sam was never the same and he never played football again. 
Because I'm sure when he was playing football, he saw Sailor John sitting over there. And then he saw, like, he got taken to Sailor John later that day. He made the connection. He wasn't stupid. So then he didn't want to play football anymore. Because, of course, it's boys. They're playing without their shirts on. So he he was eye candy for Mm -hmm. sick pedos. Remember, this is a Catholic school. It's a Catholic boarding school. So the boys were forced to attend, quote, I'm like, not even, but like an air quoting church. So many, so many aggressive finger quotes happening. <laughs> church. Every morning at 7 a.m., they would listen to sermons about God's love and how he would protect them all, all while being abused over and over and over again. Seriously, fucking seriously, the audacity. Now, Stephen tried to tell every social worker who came to see him, eight in total. Every single one of them didn't believe him. He was labeled as a liar. Any other kid that tried to tell a social worker labeled as a liar, and they were labeled as troublemakers. Now, even through everything that Stephen has been through, he's going to the secondary school, even through all of this, the boy decides that he's going to ask a girl out. Like, oh. Go you. The girl says yes. And like, so Of course she does. It's Steven. It's Steven. God. We love Steven. So. You would be so lucky as to date him. (laughs) Right. (laughs) They they go out to a movie. But then after the movie, the girl's father shows up to pick her up. But the father refuses to give Steven a ride home. I think he knew Steven went to the boarding school. And so, or the, yeah, St. Williams. And so he was like, he's a bad apple. Like, I'm not taking him home. So Stephen's forced to walk home. Well, on this walk home, an officer sees him and stops and says, hey, do you want me to give you a ride home? He's like, that'd be great. So he gets into the back of the cop car and the cop says, where am I taking you? And Stephen says, St. Williams. And he saw the cop physically flinch when he said the word St. Williams. Mm. Now, the cop was nice. So Stephen said, you know, fuck it. I, no, no social workers believing me. So he tells them about everything. He's like, they abuse us, they rape us, they this, they that. And the cop was squirming uncomfortably. And Stephen says, you don't believe us. No one believes us. The cop said, oh, we believe you. All the cops know what happens there. But it's not a police matter, so we can't get involved. Are you kidding me? It fucking excuse me? When does it become a police matter? That's exactly At what, what point? I said. Is it murder? That's what I said. That's what I said next. How is this not a police matter? When do the police come into this scenario? Children are being taken advantage of by grown men. They're being raped and assaulted. How the fuck is this not a police matter? Mm-mm-mm. Mm. So... I cannot imagine the complete devastation that he felt in that moment. The reality of like, no one's coming to save us. We literally have to sit in this until we just like age out of the system, basically. The hopelessness. Thousand percent. Just complete and utter hopelessness. After a while of being at St. Williams, a social worker notifies Stephen that his father is dead. Now, he had suffered a brain tumor and it eventually is what took his life. Now, Stephen did not have like a sad reaction, of course, to his father dying. Mm -hmm. He actually was pissed. Stephen (laughs) had built up his entire life. He had built up that like he was going to, when he got out and became an adult, he was going to like 
kill his father. Like he's like, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to take it. Like I'm going to get him back for all of the shit he did. Like he had held on to that revenge. It's like the movie Enough, you know? Yes. With uh, J-Lo. Oh yeah. It's like that. Mm -hmm. Yep. So Steven's like, you fucker. I was supposed to kill you. And now you're just going to go and fucking die? Like he was pissed. Which like, it's yeah. funny looking back and like, Ooh. and this is it's kind just of like... A, it's a funny plan and it's like... Yeah. <laughs> it's not... I ain't saying it's right. Right. right? <laughs> but this is one of... This is the theory. This is the part where I was like, okay, I can kind of understand why he didn't become a mass murderer. Because a lot of times like they're trying to exact revenge on their father. Which yeah. actually, no, that doesn't make sense because his father's already dead and a lot of people don't actually kill their mother or father who's their abuser. They kill people that look like them. So I actually, un my theory doesn't uh, even make sense. I un-theory my theory. I un-theoried my theory. So <laughs> Stevens just didn't become a serial killer because he's a good fucking person, period, in yeah. the story. Science yeah, hilarious. So when talking with the social worker, he finds out that his dad had remarried a woman named Mary and he goes into who Mary is in the book, but we don't have time. So you can okay. read the book. His dad remarries Mary. And since there was a mother, mother in the house, he was allowed to get the siblings back. So the dad and Mary are now, had been raising all three of the other kids, but he didn't try to get Stephen back. Why, why was Stephen the hated one? Don't know. The theory, which I talk about it at the end, but we can talk about it now too. Was he the an theory, accident? The theory is that she got pregnant at a wedlock. Yeah. And they were religious. They were, I think Catholic is what we've been able to kind of like piece together, that they were Catholic. And so they, out of embarrassment and shame. Trying to hide him. They hid the pregnancy. And then when he, they gave birth. Hid the child. They hid him. And then it just like, there's something they couldn't get out of, I guess. I don't, I don't know. I'm, we don't, we don't have answers because they both went and, fucking croaked before we could get answers. They both went and died. <laughs> yeah. My question is like, why was the father not prosecuted? Yeah, that's... Why wasn't he in jail? I wonder if the other kids were abused at all. They had to have been. There's no way that this I mean, I man... can't imagine a world where they weren't, but also at the yeah. same time, uh, I don't know. They seemed... I don't know. I, I'm, I'm going to put money on it that they were abused. And you'll you'll see where that comes from later at the end of the story. We're not even at the okay. end. We're not even <laughs> at the end. Okay. So a few weeks after the first of the year, Stephen was told that he was leaving St. Williams. Thank Why? God. Because he's 18. He's an adult. He's getting out. Yeah. Okay. He was excited, but also scared on where he might go because, you know, he leaves the cellar, he goes to get medical experiments. He leaves the medical experience and now he gets a Catholic school of pedophile fuck, fucking idiots. Where to now? Where to now? While packing, he was told Brother James wanted to see him. Uh-uh. Stephen uh-uh. was, of course, terrified. Uh, he was like, oh, great. He just wants to abuse me one more time before I leave. But he goes up to Brother James's office and Brother James tells him, I trust you won't say anything about what goes on here. If you do, you could find yourself back here or somewhere else. Uh-huh. Ah, are you freaking kidding me right now? So same thing, same thing as dad did. Just trying to like put fear in him to where he doesn't say anything about the abuse. So he's trying to scare him into silence. So a social worker that day comes and picks up Stephen. Now, as they're driving away, she informed him that he was getting his own apartment. Stephen is now officially <gasps> going to be on his own. Oh, oh hallelujah. hallelujah. Give him some peace. 
he get it, he's getting a little apartment behind a quaint little pet shop. Great. We love mm. this for him. Now, the social worker says, you'll feel safe there. Stephen literally laughs. And she's like, what? And he points at St. Williams and he's like, if that's safe, I don't want to know what you call unsafe. And she's like, what do you mean? And he's like, you knew what was happening there. You knew what they did to us. You all knew and yet you didn't do anything. That was like, mm-hmm. quote, what he said. Mm-hmm. Go Stephen. The social worker responds with, there has to be absolute proof before people believe troubled kids. Oh, oh. Bitch, we're in the 70s and 80s. What the fuck do you want these kids to do? Go grab some a camcorder? Did they have camcorders in the 80s? I, I think they did. Yeah, like, how are they going to get a camcorder? How do you expect these children to get you evidence? Also, how do they even know that they need to bring you evidence when you don't even believe them in the first place? Like, you won't even, like, the social workers wouldn't even go to the cops or like, uh, the whole thing. Isn't this- it a social worker's job to you know, put together a report so that an investigation can take place to find said evidence. Oh, wait, that's not a police matter. Why Why were they even going to the school to check on these kids? To, yeah, what was the point, really? To just, like, check off their to-do list? Because I'm pretty sure as a social worker, you're supposed to be protecting the kids and you're checking on them to make sure that life is good and they're doing great and they're settling where they're at. Uh, and that when the boys tell you, hey, I'm being raped, maybe... Maybe, just maybe, that's something that should be, I don't know, addressed. You think? Yeah. Now, Stephen is out on his own. Like, okay, let's try to just like move on and and live life. Now, Stephen gets a job at a flour mill. He feels rich. He's making money. Oh, yeah. This was the most he'd ever made in his life. He's feeling great. He's out on his own. Now, one day... As he's walking around town, he sees a boy that's about 16 years old standing at the train station and he recognizes him. (gasps) He couldn't place him at first, but he quickly realized that it was none other than his youngest brother, Andrew. Stop. He had not seen Andrew since he was a kid, kid, kid. So he approaches Andrew and he asks him, are you Andrew? And he says, yes. And then Stephen told him who he was, like, I'm Stephen. And Andrew awkwardly just says, oh. (laughs) that's all he says. Oh. And the rest of their conversation was short and awkward. I don't know what was said. That's all he lets us know. It's like short and awkward. But unfortunately, that was the one and only time he saw any of his family members. Like he's never even had contact with them to this day. That, that, being that awkward and him saying, oh, like, like, he, that's what makes me think that Andrew was also abused. Either... A or B. A, he was abused and himself and he just didn't know how to handle the situation. Or B, which could be a combination of the two, he was brainwashed into thinking that Stephen was this horrible person. I'm more inclined to think that he was brainwashed, but I think he still suffered abuse. True. Like, I I really think that they said this was a terrible, terrible person and that's why we had to keep him away from you because he would do this and this and this. And that's why you guys couldn't be around him. If I had to put money on it, I would say a combination of the two. But yeah, we just, we don't know. Gross. Now quickly, Stephen, yes, very sad. Now quickly, Stephen gets a girl pregnant and they get married. Uh, But Stephen was not a good husband. He, Mm. He was struggling. 
has been through a lot of trauma. Well, no one he taught did, him how to be. No, exactly. You know? He doesn't know how to be a good husband. He doesn't know how to take care of a kid. He was, and he admits it, like, I was a shit person. I was a shit human. I was a shit husband. Like, I, like, he was not. He was first predisposed to that. So yeah. what else has he got? He has no idea what healthy communication or relationships look like. So Mm-mm. what do you expect, right? Well, one day at work, he got into a really bad accident where he like actually almost died and oh, he God. gets taken to the hospital. He's in the hospital for a long time. His wife never visited him in, the ho- him in the hospital and he realized, okay, the marriage is over. Well, not long after, there comes a man in his life named Dave and Dave was a burly, no bullshit type man. And he became a father figure. We love Dave. Everyone loves Dave. He Dave! Comes a fa- a Dave. Uh, he becomes a father figure for Stephen. Now, Dave offered Stephen a job, but he told him one condition, no more fighting. No more fighting at all. Like, get your life back on track. Um, and Dave helped Stephen become a better man. And so Stephen agreed and he started working for him. Now, with the help of Dave, he does get his life back on track. Yeah, he started dating a woman named Lorraine, and they ended up having three sons together. During their relationship, Stephen was more present. He had stopped drinking as much, spending less time at the bar, and just being overall a better partner and father. Now, Dave does die from cancer many years later. He was missed and loved by so many. He was just an amazing man. And mm-hmm. I am like, massively summing up all of this. There's a whole lot that more that goes on, but read the book, okay? Go buy the fucking book. She's doing this whole thing so that you can read the book. <laughs> Go buy the book. Unfortunately, Stephen was not loyal to Lorraine and they eventually broke up and he ended up marrying a woman named Gail. Now him and Gail are still together to this day. Now we're getting into the happy part, okay? Put your party Wait, hat on. Stephen alive? Yes, he is still alive. Steven, you're the best. Steven, you deserve better. I'm so sorry. I love you. I'm so right. sorry. I love you. So everyone put on your party hats. We're getting into the good, the good news. Okay. I got it on. Years later, Steven was suffering with a bad back due to the injury from his father, you know, hit him with a shovel. So he goes to the doctor. While he's sitting in the room, the doctor comes in and says something like, oh, it's your knee. And Steven's like, no, I'm here for my back. And the doctor's <laughs> looking like highly confused. And then some old lady from down the, like a, a couple of rooms down was like, it's my knee, doctor. And so the doctor's oh. all embarrassed. So he rushes out of the room to go to the lady with the hurt knee. But yeah. in a rush, he leaves Stephen's medical chart sitting on the table. And okay. so Stephen was like, I'm going to take a look at that. Yeah. So he looks in the chart and he just gets pissed. There had been clear signs he had been abused as young as a freaking baby. He had been hospitalized for TB, which is tuberculosis, when he was only one. One years old, he's being hospitalized for tuberculosis. Tuberculosis easily grows in like dark and damp and dirty places. It's like kind of common within like the homeless populations, Mm -hmm. meaning that he was most likely already living in the cellar. He's a baby! So... We're going oh to assume gosh. that he's been in the cellar from the time he literally came out of the womb. Uh, he also had a fractured skull at 19 months old, meaning that he was an innocent baby when he was being beaten by his father. This is the moment that made Stephen realize it wasn't him. He nope. didn't do shit. He was Mm-mm. a baby. He could not have been a bad child that deserved beaten and getting his skull cracked open 
at 19 months old. No way. This was the moment that he realized it wasn't him. His father's just an asshole. But this pushed Stephen to like want answers. And so he was desperate. So he ends up calling like social services and he wants all of his records. Unfortunately, all of his records had been destroyed and they don't know why because they're not supposed to be destroyed until Stephen dies. So all of those, I know, all of those records just gone in the wind. Now, one day as Stephen was scrolling through Facebook, he stumbles upon a Facebook group that was for the survivors of the abuse at St. William's boarding school. Yeah. Through the Facebook group, they were able to bring charges against Brother James and another man named Anthony McGulligan, which his nickname was Black Spider. I don't talk about him, but he is talked about in the book. Read the book. So Brother James was convicted and sentenced three separate times. Three different times. In 1993 was the first time he was uh, convicted. He got seven years when he was found to have indecent photos of boys in his possession. Some of these photos had been taken through spy holes. Gross, gross, gross. As these boys showered or used the restroom. Mm Mm-mm. Mm-mm. In 2004 was when he was convicted and sentenced the second time. He was given a 14-year sentence. And then in 2016, he was convicted for the third time and given nine years. Now, in the 2016 trial, the judge said that he had to take into account the evidence from all three trials and pass down a sentence accordingly. So Brother James, at the age of 69, was given 30 years, but the judge was forced to deduct time served. So, yeah, unfortunately. And the judge was, I think the judge had a really hard time with this because he had to go off of what the evidence was in each of the trials. And so he he literally only could give so much time for each, you know, charge. And so 30 years was the maximum time he was allowed to give. So they had to end up deducting time served. During this 2016 trial, uh, both of them together were convicted of 35 sex offenses against 11 boys between 1970 to 1991. Brother James was found guilty of 21 indecent sexual assaults and three serious sexual assaults, but was cleared of 30 additional charges. Cleared does not mean not guilty. These are just the what was able to actually be like somewhat cooperated with yeah. some kind of evidence, okay? So this is like a drop in the bucket compared to all of the actual abuse and shit he did, right? Yeah, these are low numbers low. for the amount of boys that passed through this place over the years and grew up here. Yeah, Stephen, no. Stephen was there for what? Like three, four years and he was abused one yeah. to two times a week. Like, hmm, come on. Now, uh, Anthony, a.k.a. Black Spider, at the age of 75, he was found guilty of 11 charges, including one serious sexual offense, but was cleared of eight other charges. He was sentenced to 15 years. Now, they both have to serve half of their sentences before they could be released on license, which I'm assuming in, like, it's what we call the probation, parole, parole, that kind of stuff. If I'm guessing seven, eight, nine, ten, he could probably like sometime be up for, for, for parole, Brother James, in the next like five years ish, somewhere around there. And then, aka the Black Spider guy, Anthony, 15 years, he could, he could be up for parole now. Now? 
now because he only has to serve half of their sentences before they could be released on parole. It would have to be approved. I hope it's not, but he is eligible for parole. Nothing. Now or within a year, depending on time frames. Now, Judge Jeffrey Marson said at the sentencing trial, each of you targeted some of the most vulnerable boys. You groomed them and abused them for your own sexual gratification. The victims were effectively trapped and there was no escape for me. They were confused, frightened, and in turmoil. It has blighted their lives and each of you has contributed significantly to their misery. Each of you has a long-standing, deeply ingrained sexual interest in teenage boys. It's an interest, I have no doubt, that continues to persist. That was his quote. And then he even went on stating that the 11 victims had suffered, quote, severe, long-term, continuing psychological harm from the abuse they endured. Yeah. Beautifully said. Good job. We love Judge Jeffrey. So as the years went on, Stephen was interviewed by a leading expert in psychology, uh, Ellie Gostrick. I'm not sure how to say the last name. He concluded that Stephen would always have significant interpersonal problems and a general mistrust of others, especially those in positions of authority. You think? (laughs) I mean, understandable. The effects of PTSD on his identity, his self-esteem, and his personality will be evident for the rest of his life. This comforted Stephen. When this came out, he was like, I'm not crazy. Like, this is legit. This was the first time somebody was like, this abuse... Yes, this abuse really happened and it greatly affected you and it's going to continue to affect you for the rest of your life. Like I tell my clients, uh, for those that don't know, I'm a trauma recovery coach for religious trauma. I tell my clients, trauma does not disappear. We do not walk into trauma recovery or therapy in the hopes that our trauma is going to disappear because it won't. What we do is we learn how the trauma impacts our body and our mind and we learn coping skills on how to process that and basically take the power away from the trauma and we hold the power again. If that Hopefully that makes sense. Yes. Now, one day, Stephen was watching TV And he sees an interview of a woman named Barbara O'Hare. She wrote a book called Aston Hall. This was about the medical experience that Dr. Dr. Milner, I don't know why I keep saying his name. It's like I stumble off of it. It's fine. You can mispronounce it. You can disrespect him all you want. I don't care. (laughs) Dr. Dr. Dick for Brains um, had done for her, done to her. Uh, Stephen yelled to Gail, his wife, explaining that this was the same place he was put and that he had undergone the same experiments that she had been talking about. Now, from this interview that Gail did, 43 people reached out to the police to tell their stories of being experimented on by Dr. Milner. Unfortunately, no charges could be filed against him because the bitch died in 1976. Why's everybody gonna die? Why Why they gotta die? Why they got to go and die? Like, not fair. So they couldn't even bring charges down on the staff that was there at the hospital because they either couldn't identify those that were there. Yeah. Or they had already died themselves. So it's like, motherfucker. Like, (sighs) no justice. Yeah. No freaking justice. So police did say that if Milner had been alive when all of this came out, he would have been questioned and most likely charged with rape, indecent assault, and child cruelty. 
Now, through the investigation, Stephen found out that him and 19 other kids had intensive treatment, while most other people only had one or a few treatments. But only Stephen, only Stephen and one other uh, person of the 19 had been able to be identified. Some of the other ones had either died or like didn't come forward with their story, like <sighs> claiming that, yeah, that was them. Yeah, yeah. That's hard. Very hard. Uh, a report published in 2018 by the Derbyshire Safeguarding Children Board, which is a multi-agency body including police, the health department, and social services, said the claims made by dozens of former patients were genuine. They like validated, yes, mm-hmm. this is genuine, this happened. Now, from what I have found, the victims of Dr. Milner have or will be compensated financially for their abuse. I think if my understanding is right from the research I've read, they've already been compensated. And in August of 2019, uh, the Department of Health reached an agreement to pay the victims of Dr. Milner 8,000 euros, which is in American dollars, it's just like just under $9,000. So it's like pretty, the exchange, the exchange is pretty close if like from American to euros. Now they got 8,000 euros for being experimented on, but then if they received two to five treatments, they would get an additional 2,500 euros for each additional treatment that they got. And then people who received between six to 15 treatments would get an extra $1,500 on top of that per treatment. All right, what's Steven got? What's his total? I don't Come fucking on. know. It, right? I, I, I have no idea. Because if he had that many, so I, I did the math on his treatments. Yes. In the time that he was there, if it was around four years, I just did for four. That's around 416 treatments. No, no he was at Aston Hall for okay. uh, 16 long? months. 16 months he was at Aston Hall. Four years, four years was when he was at the Catholic school. Oh, yeah. So he was assaulted 416 times and could be more by staff, not just by that one. Yeah. Dick face. Staff, terrible pedophile people. Bitches. Yeah. But do do the math on the 16 months. So if he was getting treatment one, let's just say one time a week, we'll be, you know, we'll go on the conservative side of it. So one time a week for 16 months. That's about 64. Okay. So if they only paid out to 15 treatments, then he would have got uh, 35,500 euros. But if they paid out, because if he was there for 16 months, he would have gotten about 64 treatments. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less, but we're just going to go with the 64. If they actually paid out on all of the actual treatments, he received, then he would have gotten 109,000 euros, which in nice. American dollars is probably like 115 ish thousand, 115, 120. Not enough. Not he enough. Des- no. He deserves. I, I would say that's the lower, the lower end for me. He shouldn't have to work another day in his damn life. Like he shouldn't Absolutely have not. millions no. of dollars. Like he should be fully taken care of. Oh. Because the, the system completely failed. Oh, they fucked Whatever him over. it was supposed to do, which I still don't know what the hell it mm-hmm. was supposed to do for him, just completely was screwed up and protected by religion. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So. Exactly. Disgusting. Stephen ends up reaching out to the woman who wrote that book, Barbara O'Hare. And she yeah. is actually the one that encouraged him 
to write his own book. And that is where we come in to play the book. The Boy in the Cellar, we are going to link it. We want you to buy it. Show Stephen some love. And don't let him work another day. Uh-uh. Don't, yeah, don't let him work another day. Like make him proud of writing this book. Like the vulnerability that he had to have to tell this story. And I know that men, like it's a whole nother level. I feel like for them, like vulnerability to like out and be like, I was raped. And not just I was raped, I was raped multiple times in multiple different ways. Like I can't imagine. And I I shared this on my YouTube channel when I was doing True Crime with YouTube before we put it into a podcast form. And I shared Stephen's story. And nobody else had shared this story on YouTube that I could find literally anywhere on the internet. I just watched his or read his book. After I shared his story about, I think a few weeks later, I got a message on Instagram from one of Stephen's kids. It was one of his sons. And he said that he saw my video and that he just like was really thankful that that I shared his dad's story. He just thanked me for it. And I told him to tell Stephen that we love him and we hope he's doing well and stuff. And and it's it was cute. So his dad, is, Stephen, is loves music. He's in a band and he plays and they do shows. <laughs> he does art and like he's just living his best life. Uh, I think he still lives like on a boat because I think like having a house and an apartment was just like super overwhelming for him. So they ended up buying a boat yeah. and he lives out on a boat. And so uh, it's, I went to his page, the, his kids, his son's page on Instagram, and he's like playing the, the guitar. And so he's into music. And so he's passing down his love of music to his son. And oh, it's just so cool. And I love it. I love I that so love much. How it connects us with people doing these cases and sharing his story. Stephen's story des- deserves to be shared. And I hope more true crime people um, read his book and share his story. And then promote his book like a motherfucker because he deserves it. So we will link that below, show Stephen some love and go buy it. But yeah, that is the case of The Boy in the Cellar. And there's so much more in the book that I did not cover here. My Lord, heartbreaking. Could not even touch this. That was, I don't even know if that was the right word at this point. I remember when I told Lola, like we're doing a survivor case and it's called The Boy in the Cellar. And she was like, oh my God, I don't even know what to think. (laughs) I I'm said, like, oh, don't. Let's not. Let's just not. <laughs> it sounds scary, honestly. It doesn't sound sad. At first, it sounds like a horror film. Right. I was blown away. Like, this can't, this can't keep getting this bad. Like, this is actually a person's life. Like, it actually lives through this, and it makes me so fucking sad. And two, you know, the whole, uh, what is that series? This, the series of unfortunate events. Oh, yes. I used to read that, uh-huh. and I, I thought that was sad. No, that doesn't even touch it. That's child's play. That's child's play <laughs> when it comes to it Stephen's real-life experiences. Shoot. Stephen Smith, you can see pictures. I, I just Googled him, actually. Isn't he adorable? Yeah, I love his <laughs> hair. <laughs> right? It's so... Uh, I, if he I really ever, owns it. He really owns his look. If I ever get to go I to England, I will like work to try to meet up with him because I think it would be so cool. Oh my gosh, I'd love to. Steven, if you ever listen to this, like shoot us an email. We want to come see you. I want to bring you gifts. I want to ba- bake you something nice. Like I yes. just, uh, shoot us an email. We love email. you, Steven. Lacey and Lola, deadlyfaithpodcast at gmail.com. Shoot us an email. Oh my gosh, we'd love to say hi. But yep, that is it. That is the case. And uh, I hope you guys were as equally horrified 
But wait, we have to say something that ends it on a happy note. Hold on. Oh What's yeah, we gotta do happy? our palate cleanser. Palate cleanser. Ooh, marshmallows. <laughs> Whoa, oh, we're going with marshmallows. Was that your garage? My my basement door is opening. My my fiance is home. He's been away, oh. and now my my dogs are now happily He's celebrating home. that their father is home. Oh, so that I can hope be our palate cleanser. Are you excited? Eddie's home. <laughs> That can be our yes, concert. <laughs> yes. We're so excited that he's home. That is We're going to give him a hug because I haven't seen him all week. I'm very yeah. excited. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All week? Holy crap. No, yeah. yeah he's, been helping, he's been helping his Nana at her house. So, you know, I can hear him say that. <laughs> I can hear him, too. We're keeping this in, Eric. Don't do, That's our editor. Don't don't delete it out because we want to keep this in. It's like, it's adorable. This is the palate cleanser we need after this case because... Palate cleanser. Lord, yes. Andrew, come here. This is our palate cleanser. Is you... <laughs> Andrew is our palate cleanser for this episode. Hi, I'm Mr. Cleanser. You can... <laughs> <laughs> Why did I envision Mr. Clean <laughs> when I you said too. that? <laughs> I love that. Thank you guys for listening to us. Go cuddle your kids. Go watch something good. Watch Bob's Burgers, SpongeBob, something. Family Guy. Big Bang Theory, Family Guy. Big Bang. Have a good laugh. Yeah. You know, something lighthearted. We love you guys. Uh, Have a good week. Don't be a dick and drink water. Also, heathens, if you're enjoying the show so far, please remember to subscribe on whatever platform you listen to us on. And remember to bring your sacrifice to the blood ritual. Just kidding. A review will suffice. Deadly Faith is brought to you by Choircast Network. It's produced by Lacey Bean and Lola Robbins and audio engineered by Eric Cowell. Thanks for listening.